are doing well. Our class has swollen just a little bit. Glad to have you guys in here. John is on vacation and he wrapped up his class last week. And so, so thankful to have you guys in here. I hope there was enough worksheets. They're like Doritos. We can make some more. We're in the last chapter, chapter 21 of John's Gospel. And so I welcome you to this last session on this study, John's Gospel of Signs. Welcome to all of you who are here in the flesh and all of you who are watching online. We welcome you as well. We're going to get started. I'm going to have to fly through these slides. We're talking about uh, the time when Jesus had been resurrected and he met the apostles at the Sea of Galilee. And they had breakfast on the beach. So we'll take a look at that part of the world as it looks today. Capernaum. This was the town right next to the Sea of Galilee where Jesus basically had his headquarters. Apparently where Peter lived. And there is Peter's house. I bet you never thought you'd see a picture of Peter's house. And lo and behold, there it is. Uh, they believe this is his house because it's, it's a little bit different than the rest of the structures in Capernaum that they have unearthed. This one looks like it had been a regular dwelling, but then was somewhat enlarged and prepared to be a communal meeting place. So the thought is this is where Peter and his family lived. And then they utilized his house for a church building. This is unknown for sure. It's just speculation. But there are some, uh, what do they call them, etchings, some markings inside several passages of scripture and references to Jesus. So whoever owned this, uh, this structure, they were writing about Jesus on the walls of this building. And it's in the place where Peter likely would have lived. So there is this idea that this belongs, this is the house of Peter. There also is the synagogue in Capernaum. You may remember reading about Jesus standing up in the synagogue in Capernaum and reading from the scriptures. This part, the white part, is from the third century, but the dark stones there, essentially in the middle, those are stones from the original synagogue, which dates from the time when Jesus walked in Capernaum. So those may be stones that he looked at himself and was there to see and, and to be in the, the synagogue at that particular time. And this is also, of course, in Capernaum. By the way, everywhere you go, they plant flowers. It's a desert. It's all desert, brown rocks. And they do what they can, it seems, to make it a little more colorful. Uh, I don't have pictures of it, but everywhere you drive in this desert area, there are nicely sectioned off areas where they are growing things like crazy. They grow everything in Israel. They've irrigated the desert, and it has coverings over it to protect from birds and insects. And It's fantastic what they do and how they do it. They raise tons and tons of bananas, but you can't find a banana anywhere because they're all for export. But uh, I don't know why you'd want to know that looking at Capernaum this morning, talking about the last chapter of John, but there you go. This is another view of the inside of the synagogue, just so you can get an idea. This is what one would have looked like. And it may have looked this way in Jesus' day, although this is uh, from the third century. It's built in the same place, same location, they believe, the original synagogue was built. This is an aerial view that looks like a flying saucer, a table. 
there, that's a, the roof of a church that has been built over top of the structure they believe to be Peter's house. So what we were looking at a little while ago was underneath this. And they built a church there, and you have to climb several stairs to get up to it. And while we were there, we couldn't go into that because there was a, a, an assembly, worship assembly going on. But it was, it was neat to see, impressive to see how many people travel to this part of the world because they have an interest in Jesus and his church. By the way, that white structure just below the, uh, the, the flying saucer looking thing that is the church that's above Peter's house, that white structure is that synagogue we were just looking at. And of course you can see there's the Sea of Galilee at the top, all close to the water. There's another view of the Sea of Galilee. That is Mount Arbel in the back. That's the mountain that Jesus was apparently on when the, when the apostles got in the boat and started rowing across the water. When that storm came, Jesus was on Mount Arbel in prayer, and he came down off the mountain, walked across the sea to the apostles, scared them half to death. Have you ever wondered if you got scared half to death twice, what would happen? Anyway... <laughs> Just thought I'd ask that philosophical question this morning. But this, this is a very impressive mountain. And, and I don't know, of course, if he was on top of it or just on it. It just says he was on the mountain praying. And that's, that's the view from on the Sea of Galilee back towards the west. Here is a boat, what they believe to be a fishing boat. Uh, drought is a horrible thing, but they had a drought a few years ago. And the waters receded enough that they found this in the sediments alongside the Sea of Galilee. And there were several things in it that helped them to date the boat. There was a pot, uh, an arrowhead, and what was the third thing? I can't remember what the third thing was, but they had several things in the boat that they, they uh, used to date the boat. And so this is the kind of boat, and they know that. I don't know if I have a picture of it, but there are murals showing fishing boats, and this looked just like one of the boats in the mural. So this, is, this may be the type of boat that uh, Jesus used when he got in the boat and pushed out a little bit from shore, that he preached from that boat, and this might be the kind of boat that the apostles used. At any, way, at any rate, it's, in, it's interesting to me that they find this so close to this to town of Capernaum. There are some nails removed from the boat's construction. Uh, what do those remind you of? Think about Jesus being nailed to the cross. It's just interesting that we, we have this on display right there by the Sea of Galilee in the town of Capernaum. And I know I'm making you hungry for lunch. Uh, there is a restaurant that this is what they serve. You can get your Peter fish. That's what these are called. That's the name it's been given. I don't, you can't really tell, uh, but you can see in the fish's mouth there is a coin my daughter, Jamie, put that coin there. She thought it would make a great picture, and sure enough, it has. Why would she put a coin in the fish's mouth? That, that's where Jesus told Peter to go get his tax money. Uh, don't you wish it worked that way today? You want to pay your taxes? Just go fishing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of money in some of these fish. But that is uh, that may ju just look just like what Jesus and the apostles had uh, there on that beach where they had breakfast together that was cooked over the, the fire. This is a place, and nobody knows anything, but there are a lot of folks who seem fond of, of deciding this is the place. And so this is the place where they say Jesus met with the apostles and had breakfast, and this is where 
Uh, Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep. This is what is claimed. There's no way to know for sure, but this is a place. And once again, I, I think it's interesting that there's such significance to these events that people want to think that they have that place. This, the gospel is a powerful thing, and Jesus being the Son of God is a powerful image in our minds. And so people like to try to get closer by being next to the physical. Isn't it great, however, <clears throat> that you do not have to go over there to have a better relationship with God than you can have anywhere else in the world? You don't have, there's no pilgrimage that you have to make. The Jews had to make a trip to Jerusalem once a year. Had to get back there for one of those major feasts. All the men did, and... We don't have to do that. I'm thankful for that. I like to travel, but I'm glad that I'm I'm not obligated to travel for any kind of religious purpose. The only traveling we are obligated to do is to go into all the world and do what? Tell them what we're talking about today. So there's the place that is claimed. This is right next. If you you took the camera and just turned it a little bit to the right, that's the Sea of Galilee. You're just right by the Sea of Galilee. As a matter of fact, here's a view of that from that spot. I had to go out, I, I wanted to catch some of the shoreline, but what they have had to do, do is put up all kinds of fence and things because people just go nuts uh, when you get them in some of these places. So they put up fence to keep people out of certain areas because they want to keep it as pristine as possible. And so I got up next to the fence and got over and took a, took a shot. And that's looking back towards uh, the west and the south from that area. And there is a bit of statuary where uh, this meeting with Jesus and Peter has been memorialized. And this is what we'll be talking about in class this morning. If you ever get a chance to go, uh, for whatever reason, I never had an intention of going to the Holy Land. uh, But the opportunity came up. My sister-in-law said, hey, I'm going. You want to go? I'll pay your way. And I, nah, let me think about it. (laughs) So... By the grace of God and my sister-in-law, we went to Israel. And here is a view, by the way. This is, you can see the sea in the background. This is when you, when you leave Capernaum and you go north towards the city of Chorazin. And I threw this in there because the, the Gospel of John is all about faith. The signs that are done by Jesus to bring about faith. And you remember what he said about Chorazin and Bethsaida? He said, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. If the signs that had been done in you were done in Sodom, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And so this is on the way towards Chorazin. And, of course, I don't know if you can read that sign, but that's what that sign says. So it's so neat to go over there and to be in those places where, you know, this, Jesus was here. He saw this stuff. This was the view he had. I don't know how much alike things are, but it's almost like you get there. And yeah, this is, this is still the place. All right, let's get to our worksheet in the time we have left. I think that's the last shot, yeah. There's a snowstorm right there we ran into in the middle of the whiteout. All right, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. By this time, by the time we get to the 21st chapter, Jesus has been blank, then blank, and then blank by his father. So what would you put there? He's been crucified, he's been buried, and then... Raised by his father. John has recorded blank times so far that he has appeared to his disciples. How many times have we read so far that he's appeared? Twice. He's appeared twice. John has recorded twice. 
We don't know if that's the total number of times, but he's saying twice. John, oh, coming back to the wrongs. But now, now tells us of one more time he, and I use the word that's in the New American Standard Translation. Jesus did what? He manifested himself. So it's, it's not like he just walks in. This is a, a manifestation. You may recall the, the two previous times uh, he was in rooms where the doors were shut. And John writes that. And he says the doors were shut. shut and Jesus appears. So he manifests himself here. And it, it, did he just appear on the beach? I don't know. Did he walk up there? How far is Jerusalem from Capernaum? This is interesting too when you think about it. Hey, Helen, you guys doing all right? Cameron, right? Glad to have you. Are there no more worksheets back there? Probably not. We probably ran out. Well, all right. There goes Tom. He's going to fix it. <laughs> ah, excellent. Um, what was I talking about? Oh, Jesus manifesting himself. So he manifested himself this third time, and he's, he's on the beach. Thanks, Tom. This time, rather than appearing in a blank room, I just gave that one away to you a while ago, a closed room, he stands on the blank of the sea of blank. Stands on the shore or the beach. So instead of being in a closed room, they're off fishing in the water, and Jesus is on the beach, and he's going to holler out to them. That's how close they are. So he is on the beach, on the Sea of Galilee, which is also the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, several names, put some of those down there so you can see. It just Sometimes it depended on which Roman ruler built a city next to it, and then they called the, the, the sea after that city that he built. That's why it's called the Sea of Tiberias. Also called the Sea of Gennesaret or Kenareth. So Tiberias goes in that next blank. The Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, also called the Sea of Gennesaret or Kenareth. You didn't know this was going to be a geography class too, did you? Uh, there you go. The disciples present were, John lists them, blank, 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 Peter, Thomas, and Nathaniel, and then the sons of Zebedee, who would have been James and John, sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, James and John, as well as two other disciples who are unnamed here. Following Peter's lead, these men had gone fishing. As the 21st chapter starts out, Peter says, I'm going fishing. What else do you do? We were following Jesus for three years, and then he was crucified, and he's been resurrected. What do you think about that? How do you process that in your mind? And It's like Peter says, well, this is how I'm going to go fish and kind of clear my head. I don't know what he's thinking, but that's what he says he's going to do, and the other guys say, oh, we're going with you. So they go fishing, and it's a great opportunity for Jesus to manifest himself again in the way he did. So they had been fishing. All night. They had been doing so all night without catching anything. Any fishermen relate? Yeah. 
Fish all night and don't catch anything. Jesus, in the early morning light, told them to cast their nets on the blank side of the boat. On the right side. Cast your nets on the right side of the boat. And when they did so, they could not haul in the net because there were blank, blank, blank. What would you put in those three blanks? So many fish. So many fish. I wanted to put three blanks there for those three words so you could see this This wasn't just, oh, we caught some fish over here. No, so many fish. This ever happened before? Yes, it happened on the day Jesus called these guys to come and follow him. He gave them a catch of fish. And, and in, in accounts that people tell, this huge catch of fish initially was what enabled these guys financially to drop everything and follow Jesus. Now, there's nothing in the text said about this. It would make sense that that would be so. But the bottom line is these guys left their occupations to follow Jesus about the countryside. And now he has done it for them again. He's given them a huge catch of fish, so many fish. Seeing this, the disciple whom Jesus blanked said to Peter, who was that? The disciple whom Jesus loved he's mentioned several times doesn't say his name but it says the disciple whom jesus loved said to peter it is the it's the lord it's the lord though they were about blank blank out to sea how far out were they john denver would have liked this because they were far out about a hundred yards they were about a hundred yards out just within hollering distance on the water, Peter apparently blanked to shore, swam to shore. What John says is he put his coat on because he, was, he didn't have anything on from the waist up. And so he put his coat on as if to say it wouldn't be right to appear before the Lord with your shirt off. And so he puts his shirt on. Then he throws himself in the water, which is normally the opposite of what we do. We take our clothes off and then we jump in the water. And it doesn't say he swam to shore, but when you get when these guys take the boat to shore, that's where Peter is. So it seems apparent that he swam to shore. So if ever you wonder, why didn't Marty just say he swam to shore? Well, because the text doesn't say that. I want to I make a point. It's important to stick with what the text says, and it's important to realize what the text does not say. What did we learn about Jesus stumbling with the cross? Anybody remember? It's not anywhere in either of the four Gospels. Neither one of the Gospel writers says that Jesus fell with the cross. That is speculation. All it says is a man by the name of Siren. Simon. Well, Siren. That's, that's from Lord of the Rings, isn't it? No, that was Sauron. Anyway, Simon from Cyrene was compelled to bear the cross. And they don't say why. So there's nothing in the Gospels about Jesus stumbling and... It doesn't say specifically that Peter swam, but what else could he have done? He must have swam to shore. The rest followed blank the net full of fish. Is that significant that they were dragging it? What do they normally do when they catch fish? They pull them in the boat. Why didn't they pull them in the boat? Because when God gives you a blessing, he'll give you one bigger than you can handle that's what you read malachi 
I'm going to open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you. You can't receive it. And he says that to people who've been robbing him. So anyway, back here we are to the last section in this section. It says, there was a fire made of charcoal upon which were placed some fish. That's why I threw the picture in there. That's why they have those fish there. And there was blank as well. Bread. You get the impression he'd cooked the bread on the fire, but that's another thing the text doesn't say. It just says there were fish on the fire, but there was also bread. Did he just bring it from Walmart? I don't know. Well, probably not. Jesus asked them to bring some of their fish, so blank drew the net to the shore. Peter. Peter drew the net to the shore. I don't know if there's any intention of it here, but it's like Peter's the man pulling this net full of fish up on shore. What did Jesus say he was going to do with these guys? I'm going to make you fishers of men. And then it's not long. Forty days later, Peter's preaching on Pentecost, and he's pulling a net to shore again, 3,000 souls in it. Just interesting the, the imagery that could be here intentionally. At least it's here by accident. It was full of blank fish. Large fish. Sometimes you go fishing and you'll catch one and you'll hold it up and you go, should we keep it? Why do you ask that question? Because you're not sure if it's large enough. Isn't the first time, that's when he said that he would make a fisher for men. It wasn't this instance. No, no not, not this time. time. That, was, that was initially. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And then gives them a, a haul of fish twice. And Peter's the one pulling the net to shore. Do, 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 do. They're large fish about blank in number. 153, yet the net was not torn. And that's all very significant. All right, chapter 21, verses 12 to 17. John says they did not ask Jesus who he was because they knew it was him, yet the question of his identity arose. Why do you suppose this was? Don't you find that interesting? John says, it's the Lord, Peter. And John records, nobody was afraid to ask, or everybody was afraid to ask him who he was. So if you and I meet in Walmart... Are we going to know who we are? I mean, sometimes you'll meet somebody and you're standing, you're talking to them like you've known them all day and you can't remember their name for anything and you feel stupid, but you're not going to tell them. But, but here's Jesus they've been with for three years. And there's a question about his identity. What do you make of that? And I'm, it's, it's all speculation because John doesn't say. Nick? Typically, I mean, talking about early morning, it's dark, you know, and you're... have a fire with coals. It wasn't even a roaring fire. Right. So just talking in a dark or... That that stuck out to me too. It's like, why would it be... Like, why would they not know it was Jesus if they just spent every waking... And that's the other part too is that's not confusing, but you just like, it makes you think is if he had already returned, why were they not by his side as they had been for three years? Why were they now back at home 
going on with their normal lives, and like, you don't know, right? right? And it's not, those are the wrong things to get hung up on, mm -hmm. right? But it's also things that were made note of, and so you wonder why. Right. It's, it's interesting to me. The crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, all that took place where? In Jerusalem. Capernaum is like 80 miles away, and you, you're no, there's no hopping a bus. Hey, I'll be there this afternoon. No. How long would you have to have to walk 80 miles? Yeah. Right. We're, we're probably talking a four-day walk, minimum, I would think. Generally, biblically speaking, they'll give you 20 miles a day. Well, that's pretty good, 20 miles a day. Maybe if you're on an animal, but if you're walking, and apparently Peter and his fellows were, so you're you're walking back to Capernaum, and you get there. Well, I'm going fishing. It's like what? What? Jesus told you multiple times he was going to be arrested, crucified, and resurrected on the third day, and this happened, and you're going back home to go fishing. It's like, and, and I'm. It sounds like I'm being critical. But I'm just trying to figure this out because they experienced something. <laughs> There's nothing more uniqueer <laughs> than what they are going through right now. Seeing him on the cross, knowing that he was dead. The spear went up into his side. The blood, the water came out. He was wrapped in a hundred pounds of gooey alum, not alum, aloes and myrrh and wrapped in linen cloths and laid in that tomb, there's no way he could have survived any of that. And yet there he is on the beach. Preparation of the body, like do they, do they cut his hair? Do they shave, like did he look different than what they were used to because they didn't see him prepared into the tomb? Like, right, and what about even his voice? They're, they're in the boat and they hear his voice, hey! Throw it on the other side, which she's already told them that before, three years earlier, I know. But they've been hearing that voice for three years, and, and they don't know. And I'm not, I'm not asking because I'm trying to find out. I'm just saying these things are, I think, worthy of thinking about. Shannon? I was walking with the two men from Emmaus on the road. Even they didn't recognize him until he left them. Right. So there seems to be something about him that had changed, something that was familiar yet different and when, when Paul writes about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 how does he refer to the resurrection body the word he uses is glorified glorified I don't know exactly what that means obviously as if I have to say that but there was something different and he could do different things. I, I'm sure if he had wanted to during his regular life, he could have just disappeared and appeared as he seems to have done in the closed rooms. But he's doing that now on a fairly regular basis. And it, we're showing, being shown by John, who was there witnessing these things and hearing these things, that there was a question about his identity. And, and he doesn't elaborate on that. It's like, what, what do I always say? I need another verse, John. And the Holy Spirit said, you do not. Just read it and go, Marty. Bud? You know, when Jesus uh, walked through the crowd, uh, the, the place where they were going to push him over right. the side or whatever, and uh, he walked through the crowd. 
He didn't just walk into the crowd. He walked through the crowd. So uh, people, people uh, don't know how he did that. Right. But we are given enough evidence to draw a logical conclusion. And it doesn't mean that we're right or wrong. It just means that that's what happened. We go with the evidence. We go with the evidence. Yeah. And all the evidence is he, he did everything he said he would do and more because John will say at the end of this gospel, if, if we'd written everything he did, the world wouldn't contain the books. Now, pay attention to that because that's going to be a blank to fill in. I'm sure you're excited about that now. But, but that was Jesus. That's what he did. And there are, there are questions that are unanswered, but that's okay. They don't have to be answered. It's kind of like, and I, and I don't want to get into any big controversy about Santa Claus, but I'm a kid and I get up on Christmas and there's stuff under the tree. Where'd you come from? Who cares? <laughs> there's stuff under the tree. I got a Johnny Seven. Any of you guys old enough to remember what a Johnny Seven was? <clears throat> that was a gun that was actually seven different guns. It was like a big, looked like a big M60, but it had a grenade launcher and had a pistol that would pull out of the bottom. It was cool. And I had a monkey division helmet one year. Anybody remember the monkey division? It seems, yeah, that's appropriate for Marty. But it was this big helmet that you put on, had little things come out like antennas, had a, had a built-in walkie-talkie. I don't know why, because nobody else had a walkie-talkie. But it had these goggles that you could raise and lower. I said, man, I, I, would, I would go without for a long time, tell them, if I can just have this on Christmas, and it would be there. And they'd say Santa Claus, some, uh, but I kind of knew. But the, the bottom line is, God is always giving us good things. You are here today, are you not? The young man was killed Friday night. Lives were changed. He just went to a football game and there was a fight and somebody decided to shoot him. And our whole community is struggling with the effects of that. So when God says, I want to bring you out of that, I'm coming down here, I'm going to live in that place with you for 33 years, and I'm going to die the worst death you could imagine so that my sacrifice can bring you out of that place. He didn't come here to make the world a better place. He did, but his intention was not to make this a better place to live. His intention was to make a way for us to get out of it just like the Titanic. Nobody who showed up, who tried to get to that distress signal, nobody went there to think, oh, we're going to keep it from sinking. No. They went there for survivors. And that's what Jesus is all about. All right. Bottom line. Finishing breakfast, Jesus asked Peter, do you blank me more than these? Do you love me more than these? And they're... I've got a, a little thing here to explain what's going on because in, in English you don't typically see it. Not a criticism of the English language, but it's just the way it, it's translated. The Greek to English conundrum, I'll call it. Jesus asks Peter three times if he loves him, but the first two times Jesus uses the Greek word, and that I just, it's cool that our computers have a font for Greek letters, so I put it in there so you could see what the Greek looks like. That's the word agape or agape. Agape is the form of love that is proven by blank rather than blank. This is important. It's proven by actions 
rather than sentiments. If you, if you have sentiments for someone, we'll call that love. But agape love is when you actually do for someone what love would require. And it has no dependency on how you feel. This is why Jesus could say, love your enemy. When he says agape your enemy, he's not saying have a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling towards your enemy. That's not what agape means. Agape means when you see your enemy hungry, what do you do? You feed him. You may hate his insides. That's a nice way to say it, isn't it? It's not quite as graphic. But you'll feed him. Your feelings are one way, but you're going to do another thing. Why do you do the other thing? Why do you do the thing that's good for him? That's called faith. That's called faith. And so we condemn ourselves because of how we feel. Because we know we don't feel the way we should feel. But when you push through your feelings and you do what you know is right in spite of what you feel, that's faith. And so Jesus says, agape your enemies. Do good for your enemies. And Jesus was asking Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me with your actions, not your sentiments? That's what he's asking. That's agape. Peter answers Jesus first question saying yes lord you know that i love you peter however rather than using the word agape as jesus used instead answers with the greek word phileo phileo is the kind of love based on blank of warmth or blank the first blank would be feelings phileo is based on how you feel it's not based on what you do it's based on what you feel. Sometimes it all goes together, but it doesn't have to. And there's a distinction in the Greek between these two kinds of love. And so here's, here's Jesus asking Peter, Peter, do you, do you prove your love with your actions for me? And he's asking a man who had done what just a little while before? He had denied him three times. Jesus said he would. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. It's all right. In the world, there's a lot of trouble. But do you believe in God? Believe in me. Don't let your heart be troubled. That's what he told him after he told him, you're going to deny me. If you remember that from the 14th chapter. So Peter apparently is unwilling to, to hypocritically make the claim, yeah, I love you with my actions. I'm the guy that just denied you three times when the heat was on. So he says phileo. That's what's happening here. So... Both agape and phileo are forms of love, so using love is a good translation, but lacks the subtleties of meaning brought out by an understanding of the Greek words uttered between Jesus and Peter. I just want you to understand, Jesus was asking, do you agape me? And Peter was saying, I phileo you. I, I, have, I really feel like you, I care about you, but he couldn't say agape because he hadn't. That's what I think is going on there. All right, Jesus asked Peter the blank time if he loves him. Third time, three times. Do you wonder why he might have asked three times? It seems to me there were three denials, and so he's going to give him three opportunities to confess, I, I care about you, and that's what Peter does. This time, however, in an apparent concession to Peter's unwillingness to use agape, he asked Peter if he phileos him so to speak. 
How did Jesus respond each of the three times to Peter's answers? Jesus would say, do you love me, Peter? And Peter would say, well, I, I care about you. And then after, after the first time, after the second time, after the third time, Jesus says essentially the same thing. What does he say? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. What's he doing? You see that the way I'm looking at this is, Peter says, do you agape me, Peter? And Peter says, oh, I, I don't have the right to say agape, but I, I, I really care about you. And Jesus says, oh, feed my sheep. What's he do? He's giving him an opportunity to prove his agape for Jesus. If I go feed his sheep, that's agape because I'm going to go do what he said to do. And that will prove that I agape him. It's, Jesus always gives us a way to rebound, always a way to come back. Sometimes in relationships with people, they just say, that's it for you. You're not going to be my friend anymore, and it's over. But Jesus always says, hey, you want to be my friend? I'm, I'm here. You can't keep doing the things you're doing, but I want to be your friend. And here's a way to come back. Here's a way to make this right. And by the way, that's a, that's a good thing to learn in marriages, uh, in all relationships. Always leave a way to make things right. But don't put up with any garbage either so this is what seems to be going on here chapter 21 verses 18 to 25 jesus gives peter a glimpse into his future explaining how he will how he will die this is how you're going to die peter you you're a young man you go wherever you want to go but when you're older somebody's going to gird you going to tie you and take you where you don't want to go And that's how he told Peter he was going to die. Jesus then tells Peter, same thing, follow me. Four times now, Jesus has told Peter, follow me. John the Apostle is writing out this gospel. And why in the world is he he writing out this last chapter the way he's writing it out? To me, these guys are going through a crisis of faith. And it's interesting, they're going through a crisis of faith because the very thing Jesus said would happen has happened, but it's like, how how can this be? How can this man we saw die be resurrected and now he's telling us, go into the world? He's not saying, you go back to Jerusalem and you wipe out those guys that crucified me. Why is he not saying that? Because his kingdom is not of this world. He's saying, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Follow me, Peter. That's what he did the whole time. He fed sheep. He took care of people. He did good. He was a blessing everywhere he went. He taught people. He lifted them up. He gave them respect. That's what Jesus did. And Jesus is telling Peter, you go feed my sheep. Of knowing, just say that you lost a loved one. Now, I'm not trying to dig up a well of emotions, but just saying that you lost a loved one and you, you, you craved to be with them, to talk to them. And and after my dad died, I would look in a crowd of people and think, oh, that's him, you know. And I knew he was gone. Yeah. And can you can you imagine back then, you know, I wish I could talk to him, and then he, he shows up, and then he says something, and the impact mm-hmm. that it has, you know, you just think about that. And, and, and maybe it's somewhat the same now, although... We're talking about our Lord and Savior, but still think about the impact. He said, they saw him die, and here he is. And he and they, they like you said, they were having, uh, how did you say it, a, a crisis of faith. 
uh, you know, they were struggling, and all of a sudden, here he is. They haven't received the Holy Spirit yet, but here he's here, right. and, and it's just, it's amazing. Really. And they, they don't even have, <clears throat> after three years and the resurrection, they don't even have the concept of the kingdom straight in their minds yet. What's the question that Luke says they asked Jesus in Acts chapter 1? And you're saying, Marty, this is a John class. You can't ask us about Acts. They asked Jesus in Acts chapter 1, is it now you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And, and you go over there today. Our guide is a Messianic Jew. Or was, is, yeah, I say was because it was back then in September. But, but he is a, a Messianic Jew, which means he believes in Jesus. But he's still looking for Jesus to come back and restore the nation of Israel, the physical nation of Israel, to its uh, economic, military glory. And, uh, and I, no, that's, that's not Jesus' plan. He's not coming back to make this place right. He's, this is his footstool. Why would he come back to reign on his footstool? So Jesus' kingdom is very different. And, and he's already given them a preview back in chapter 11. What happened in chapter 11 of John? Lazarus was dead for four days. And he said, I'm going to raise him up. Open that tomb. And what does Martha say? Don't do that. He's going to stink. I don't want to smell my dead brother. I love him. Well, she didn't say all that, but she didn't want that tomb opened because she couldn't see. She couldn't imagine what was about to happen. And then he called his name. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. And now he's come forth. His father has raised him from the dead. What do you think of this kind of statement being made so near the end of this gospel? I mean, you, you get when you read a book, don't you like to have a happy ending? Okay, yeah. Well, this is a happy ending. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. But what's he telling Peter? I'm resurrected. Now I'm going to tell you how you're going to die for me. You're going to go preach my gospel, and people are going to kill you for it. Wow. Is that a hopeful message? Yes, <laughs> because finally, this is the one thing in the world that's worth dying for. Nothing else is worth dying for like this gospel is worth dying for, like Jesus is worth dying for. Because nobody else can meet you on the other side like Jesus will meet you on the other side. And so he says this, and John records it, and it's good. The Holy Spirit doesn't say, well, you know, that's kind of heavy to lay on people here at the end of the book. Let's not write about that. No, put that in there. Put that in there. Hearing this... Peter asks, hearing, hearing the, how he's going to die, Peter asks of the one whom Jesus blanked, the one whom Jesus, what about this guy? What about this man? Jesus replied, what is that to you? What does that mean? None of your business. <laughs> I'm telling you what's going to happen with you. What's going to happen with him is my business. John now reveals that blank is the one whom Peter, of whom Peter asked. He, put the word he. No question about pronouns here. John reveals that he is the one of whom Peter asked, the one whom blank blank, the one whom Jesus loved. John's that one. He also refers to this gospel as his blank. Last verses, he says, this is my testimony and my testimony is true. John closes with the statement, and there are also blank other things 
many, many other things which blank, blank, which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the blank itself would not contain the books that would be written. World, the world would not contain the books that would be written, but these are written. Aren't you glad that God said, okay, time to cut it off. Let's have, we'll have 21 chapters, that's enough. Matthew, 28 for you. And, and actually, did God ever say chapters? <laughs> when were the chapters added? I'm thankful they were, but that wasn't until over hundreds of years later, thousands, a, a thousand, was it 1,500 or something like that? Uh, the book, the Bible was divided into chapters and later it was divided into verses. So I'm, I'm thankful for chapter and verse divisions, but those are not in the originals. These guys just wrote this stuff out. But it's interesting that the Gospels are essentially about the same size and have about the same message. All right. Anybody got anything as we close? Yes, Linda. Oh, uh, affection. Phileo is a kind of love based on feelings of warmth or affection. Affection. Make sure it's affection, not infection. All right. I appreciate you. I hate that this class is coming to an end, but it is. We'll have to start something else. I love you.